Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Rob. I'm here in Oregon. Uh, we're, we're going through our quarantine episodes here and uh, joined by Roman Sivkin, who is in New York, uh, in the epicenter of the epicenter uh, in Queens. We know him and his family are doing well, so that's good. And also our sound engineer uh, and bearer of a fantastic um Handlebar mustache, uh, Heston Hoffman, who is uh, in Oregon as well, in Portland. So uh, today, uh, a bit of a departure from our Robert Musil and Modernist Vienna podcasts. We're going to talk about books as objects. And of course, you know, as passionate readers, we're, we're surrounded by books. And I think in some ways, it's only natural that uh, we, we, we might fetishize books, that we might become enamored with books, um, whether it's collecting books or whether it's um, taking a certain interest in a particular uh, uh, publisher or certain kinds of editions. I think that's personally describes me that um, from an early age, I began to really fall in love with the physical object, with the book itself, um, and particularly with with hardcovers and the whole idea of dust jackets. So we're going to just sort of chat a little bit about um, the physical object of books, um, whether you know folks are collectors, um, or I think in the case of Roman, uh, you know, he's been starting to shed that idea of you know just you know stocking up your bookshelf, um, and and also just you know the personal habits. Of, of owning books. I mean, do you write in books as you read them? Do you engage in, you know, marginalia? A lot of people feel that it's some kind of, uh, you know, sacrilege or, or do you, you know, break the bindings when you read books? Personally, when I see that, uh, there's an ache in my heart. Um, yes. You know, how, how do you organize your books? You know, one of the, we talk a lot about book Twitter, but um, I actually love to see book porn. When people, you know, show their bookshelves and I, I love, I kind of uh, try to get a closer look and, and see exactly what they're reading. Um, and so I'll, I'll kick this off with an anecdote. Um, and that is, I love the physical books. I have a massive bookshelf. My wife is always getting, asking me to, to sort of empty it out. But, um, you know, Roman, uh, I've mentioned this before, but when we were living together in the 1990s in Boston, you went through your Nabokov period. And just at that time, Vintage International was reissuing all of Nabokov in these really um, sleek, uh, opal, white, opaque editions with these, you know, really modernist uh, sort of art pieces on the front. And I, I, I remember you buying these. I don't know, you know, if you were just going to the Harvard bookstore and just buying them in bulk, but, um, you know, you had this massive row on your shelf of all these vintage international as you were going through those. And um, I, I, I used to love to just poke around in your bookshelf and, and particularly at those books. Mm. And in, in recent times, as you think about, you know, the plan for you and your wife, you guys have some plans to do traveling and to, to kind of uh, unmoor yourselves. You started sending me books and you sent me um, all of your vintage international Nabokov books, a few new directions as well. And, uh, you know, they sit uh, right here. And it's I, a nice and I, set, isn't it? It's, it's a nice it's, set. It's beautiful. And, yeah, yeah. um, there is something really nice about having an entire collection of your favorite writer's books. Um, so, so that's just something that, uh, to kind of kick us off, but, um, 
you know, Roman, in general, you said you're starting to to borrow from the library. You're starting just to not to feel that you need to be surrounded by all these books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was I, I am to a large extent still very much in that in that spot where, as you describe yourself, uh, somebody who kind of fetishizes books and just loves having them around. But at the same time, because we are hoping to obviously it's now delayed because of the pandemic but we're, we're hoping to start some sort of a nomadic lifestyle where we um, you know, move from place to place don't really have a, a, a central kind of a home and so with that in mind i started thinking about what am i going to do with my thousands of books and uh, and at first i was very sad because because you know these are these are part of my identity i can walk around my apartment look at the shelves and and really recall a lot of interesting moments in my life by yeah. just looking at the book spines, right? You just don't need, don't need to actually open the books. You just look at the titles, see what you've read, see what you haven't read yet. Um, and so I really, you know, that's kind of a, been such a part of my identity, just being such a bookish person all my life. But I've been, I've been slowly kind of losing that over the past several years. And not just because we're, we're planning on, on, on being, you know, nomads, but also because, uh, I, I, I'm not actually, actually, I don't really know. I've been trying to think of what exactly my position is on this. And I think it's a moving target. Um, I'm both sad that I will be losing my physical books. Uh, and also, uh, it's kind of liberating, uh, because they are physical objects. They are, they tie you down. They're material things, you know? I mean, kind of, I guess in a Buddhist sense, you have to kind of shed all that stuff in order to be, you know, feel, you know, free or liberated. Um, so it's both very sad and scary for me to do that. But at the same time, I, I'm beginning to see the light of how, how life would be without books. And I kind of like it and I'm kind of scared of it because again, it's just been such a part of my identity all of my life. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be caught dead without a book. I'm always having, you know, I yeah. a book with me. Uh, you know, in case I have to wait for the subway or wait somewhere in the doctor's office or whatever, or or be in class as I was in high school. You know, <laughs> math. Forget about math. I'm reading Dostoevsky. <laughs> Back at the classroom, you know. <laughs> but but you know that that makes sense if you are going to be uh you know purposely homeless, right? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to whatever put them in storage or something. But at some point, you and your wife will likely um you know, uh, have a, have a yeah. home base at some point. And then I, at that point, how could you have a home base without books? I mean, look, when I go into someone's home, even if it's a, you know, beautiful home and even if they're, it's tastefully decorated, if I don't see somewhere books, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, 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 I think a little bit less of my hosts. <laughs> Right. Well, look, I, I, I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm going to keep about 100 books, which is, you know, it's not oh, a lot. So, it's not a lot, but I. you're, but you're not exactly are, a minimalist, Roman. Well, 100 books is not is nothing. It's just a couple of shelves, really. Well, OK, big shelves. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm Roman still. I, I'm not somebody else. I still need books. I'm not totally, you know, enlightened. <laughs> I can't just live on air. I need I need food for the body and food for the mind. But I mean, look, we also live in a digital world where I, I hate reading things online. On the other hand, I just downloaded onto my tiny little phone, which I can carry in my pocket. I have all of Melville, for instance. I mean, that's, that's, uh, 
I believe, about 19,000 pages of Herman Melville. So I have 19,000 pages in my, my tiny little phone in my pocket uh, of, a, of an author that I adore, that I can read basically for the rest of my life and not get bored. Um, and even though it's not the ideal thing, you don't have the physical object of the book holding. Because, I mean, I remember the, ah, that, that paperback. There's a paperback edition of, um, of Moby Dick. Uh, it's actually not a paperback. It's kind of mid-sized. Uh, and the and the the binding is this kind of re- weird rubber. I forget exactly the publisher, but but it's just it was a pleasure to hold it, a pleasure to open this book up and yeah. look at the illustrations, and and really added to my enjoyment of the book. Uh, and I started Moby Dick. Uh, I started Moby Dick in an old hardback that I have from from um, uh, this this gentleman who died when I was in my twenties. Some guy who died, and we were asked to go clean out his house, and he had a bunch of books. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, you remember those, right? And yeah. so one of them was Moby Dick from like a 1920-something edition. So I started reading in that, and, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a nice book and all, but it wasn't the same feeling because I was holding this old book that really didn't quite have a nice binding. And, and even though it was the same text, when I switched to that really nice paperback kind of with that kind of rubber-covered um, covers, not rubber, but they're like this, this weird material. Anyway. I just I just suddenly enjoyed it more. So it, it was kind of weird because it's the same text, same author, two different physical books, and I get an enjoyment more. I mean, slightly more, obviously not uh, huge, but it's just it was a pleasure to hold. And I I looked forward to coming back and opening this book up to you know where I left off and 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 keep reading um, more so than I was in the beginning with this with this hardback that I had from the 1920s. So it it does make a difference, but at the same time. I think you, you you use the word fetish. It's a bit of a fetish having books, isn't it? I mean, we as bookish people, we just surround ourselves with these objects. We take them out, we caress them, we we arrange them by different methods. We we like to look at them. We like to uh, to uh, take photographs and to send them to other people to take a look. Look at my books, like I said, book porn, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of getting out of that headspace a little bit now. Oh, I, I don't know, man. I I, I, I yeah, man. I don't know. I think it it's a good me. thing. It scares me. Yeah, but you know, whatever scares you is probably there's something there. Then there's something there that you need to look at a little bit more in depth. Maybe um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Obviously, look, if I had a, a house, a big house, if I had some sort of stability as far as my, you know, my uh, existence, as far as you know, I, mean, I have a whatever one job, I'm staying one place, I have space, then I would probably continue collecting books and 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 really enjoying them from that kind of fetishistic. Um, physical aspect of them um but since i don't and i know that it's not going to happen and i'm not particularly looking forward for that happening i i, I want to go the other way i want to lighten my load i want to be more mobile um so i'm okay with it at the same time i think that i mentioned that before that that scene in uh, in 2001 a space odyssey where the computer hal you know he's gone berserk and so the, that one astronaut that's left is is taking its memory modules out. You know that scene, that famous scene towards the end? They, it actually looks like the memory modules look like uh, this huge bookshelf with these like things that kind of come out like uh, out of the bookshelf, like sort of like books, except they're like these clear plastic, whatever, whatever passed it for, you know, passed for memory modules or whatever in, in uh, Kubrick's head at that time. Obviously, it's all science fiction. But as as the astronaut is taking these these memory modules out of Hal, Hal goes, Dave, you know what are you doing? Uh, 
I feel myself going. Uh, I'm going. <laughs> and so I kind of feel that way. You know, when I when I got rid of my Nabokov, well, when I sent you my Nabokov collection, I'm like, well, that's that's a good chunk of my 20s. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, again, painful, but at the same time, and uh, strangely freeing. And I I, I want to explore that freeing um, sensation a little bit further. We'll we'll see. I might I might just freak out. You know, I might call you in six months saying, no, I want those I want those books back, man. <laughs> Send them back. <laughs> so I you know I'm conflicted. I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted, and I do think that there's something about this this word fetish that we we're talking yeah. about a fetish here. We're talking about something that's that's kind of skewed and not normal. Yeah. Whatever normal is, you know. I'll never <laughs> read some of these books again. Right, I have them on my bookshelf. I've read them. Mm. Never read them again. And I don't know about YouTube, but I never lend my books out either because I won't get them back, right? So I'm like, wow. Totally. I, used to, I used to lend my books out because I, then I just never would get them back and I, I stopped. <laughs> I stopped a few years ago. So I have this massive bookshelf of books that I'm, you know, many of which I'll never read again and which I'll never lend out. So, you know, they're so just kind of sitting feel, there. <laughs> how do you feel about that, Justin? How do you feel about having all these books? Are you are you planning on just, well, maybe you're not planning on anything. They're just sitting there, but... You're gonna keep accumulating them. You're gonna are you gonna get rid of some so you can make space for other ones. I, I mean, what's I don't what know. You're thinking? I think recently, what I've started doing is I will. I'm really careful about what books I buy. Um, I've started moving more toward towards uh, hardcovers, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, if 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 it's one of my favorite authors, and it's a and you know it's in a hardcover, then maybe I'll maybe I'll buy it. Right, but I have I have started moving to more towards like ebooks and stuff as well, just because it's so easy to take them out at the library, um, and it's easier to read them at night when Bethany's trying to sleep, <laughs> you know. Mm. So it just mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it seems to fit my lifestyle more. Also, these old books, I don't know what it is. I think I just have really bad allergies. Like I'm allergic to something in these old books. So I'll try to read one of these old books and it'll end up almost killing me. So I, I don't know. Just, 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 yeah. Maybe digital's better. Yeah, you you know, and and I think one point of distinction which which is worth exploring, mentioning old books, is although I I guess in a sense I collect books, I'm surrounded by them. I've never felt the pull toward antiquarian books, right, or an anti- or visiting mm-hmm. antiquarian bookstores, and the distinction here, being right. right that these are books that are of um, uh, p- p- particular value. Right, maybe they're a first edition, or they're extremely rare, or extremely old. That has always been somewhat of a mystery to me. To the, in fact, um, Powell's, you know, uh, the great Powell's, which sadly mm-hmm. is closed right now, but still open for business. If you need a book, go online. They, um, I'm, I'm there. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, I was there at least once a week, and they actually have an antiquarian uh, room on the third floor. Never been in it. You know, looked in. You can. It's all glass. They they only allow a few people in at a time. Have it's no desire cool. to. You yeah, have you been in? <laughs> yeah, but it's weird. It's like um, I, I I love physical books, but I also want. I, I expect a certain affordability so that I can read the dumb, damn damn. Affordability, yeah. also use. You want to use it. You yeah, yeah, just, right. So display it on a shelf. You want to open it. You want to enjoy reading it, and then put it on your shelf. You don't want to just have it on your shelf. Like, well, look at this. You know. T- thousand dollar book I got from you know 1750 or whatever but I but I can I, I I can see the appeal in the sense that I think when you visited me here in Oregon Roman two years ago I remember you were looking at my bookshelves and right away this is before our whole musal thing you saw I had a uh, in uh, hardcover 
of a musal, that initial musal translation in the 1950s. I forget who did that. Um, and it was hardcover and there was a plastic uh, protector over mm-hmm. the dust jacket. You were like, oh, this is this, you know, this is really nice, man. And I'm like, yeah. And I have, I've bought a few books that had that plastic cover mm-hmm. and it, I could start to see myself going down that road of being like, you know, if I ordered, you know, a hundred plastic covers, you know, mm-hmm. I could go through all my hardcover books, <laughs> some of which are first edition. And I could, I could, you know, diligently put that plastic on and, and, you know, it, it, my biography of Robert Lowell from 1985, that, that would never fray, you know, the cover. Yeah. 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 Um, I, so I could, I can start to see how you go down that road, but, but I do read and sometimes reread books enough that, that seems slightly, uh, I yeah, I, I don't want to start thinking of them as sacred objects to that degree. Well, it, it depends. It depends. Like I have, I, I agree with you. Uh, there's somebody, who was it? It was Olga Grushin, the writer, uh, who's on book Twitter. You know, I think we all follow her. Yes. Uh, she's been tweeting uh, on and off about uh, exactly this, putting these plastic and you know, covers on the books. And she did exactly that, Rob, what you were thinking about. Yeah, she oh. got a bunch of the these covers, and she's been covering her best books. I, I I kind of agree with you as far as like that's maybe a bit much, unless you you know you want to do that, that's fine. And you have a lot of really good hardback books. Um, a lot of my books are are old and not particularly in great shape, um, and also paperback. Um, but uh, I do have like I have a first edition uh, Philip K. Dick, A Man in a High Castle, which I somehow stumbled on in a used bookstore. And uh, I, boy, I put a plastic cover on that thing myself, man, years ago, just because it's a special book, you know. So if you have, if you find something like that, it's really special. I mean, it, it's worth taking care of it and and, and keeping it. So, so you'll be mailing, you'll be mailing that one to me. Is that? Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> certain, certain. That that's part of the one hundred that I'm keeping. Yeah. Yeah, and all my signed books. I mean, what about books that are signed by authors and stuff? You know, I have a bunch of books from Raymond uh, Raymond uh, Smolian that he signed for us. Uh, Paul Krasner, who died recently, uh, sent me a signed book, uh, actually two, and I can't find that one. I think I loaned it to somebody. God damn it! Um, so those books are very special, and definitely not getting rid of them. You know, those are personalized books in a way. You know, they're they're personal to you. Yeah. Um, literally having your name in it and by the way i used to put my name in all of my books as as i was you know as a teen and when well into my 20s maybe even my 30s so to this day once in a while i go to a friend's house like i went to dan my friend dan's house and i i, I grabbed the book oh that looks like i something i read years ago i open it up and my name is right there in the inside cover and like that's my book <laughs> you know with, with the with the handwriting that i used to have when i was 19 for crying out loud which i still don't have anymore so it's kind of weird. Um, but also, by the way, talking about writing in books, you know, as far as marginality goes, those are the really valuable books for, for scholars. You, you know, you go to these antiquarian books, bookstores and whatever, and if you have a, a book with marginalia, it's, it's worth way more, you know? Yeah. You know, there was a um, – maybe you, you recall who this was, but um, about two years ago – uh, a very prominent New York writer who I think has recently died, and I can't recall his name, but he he sold Martin. David yes. Martin. David 
David yes. Marston, he was he was a good friend of uh, yes. of, of the Strand Bookstore, right? Which he frequented all you know every every week, um, and so he donated his books to the Strand, and there was a, a mad rush to go right. get David Markson's annotated copies, you know, his marginalia, and they all disappeared within like a week or two. You know, I, I, I unfortunately I found out about this too late. Uh, but and then people were posting pictures of his of his you know the marginalia, uh, but that was a famous case. Yeah, that was David Markson. Yeah, you know I I used to have a policy of I just couldn't bring myself to write anything here. Yeah. in books, and so for a while there's those little um, sticky uh, paper things that you can put in, and I would kind of write on them. And, um, well, like a book plate. Yeah. Yeah. So I would sort of do that. Um, but it, it got burdensome. And so my compromise after what, what helped me to think about it differently was precisely what you were talking about that, um, you know, famous writers have, have, have been putting their thoughts and their reflections in the margins of, of books forever. Not, not that I am of that caliber, but, um, I read something about, um, David Foster Wallace and in his papers, which are at the University of Texas, and you can actually go um, online to the Harry Ransom Center, and you can you can see all of his books. They they archived his library, which was quite extensive, and you know the marginalia, as you point out, really is a is a, um, a historical yeah, resource. Yeah, it's a treasure trove. Yeah, it's a treasure trove for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so so my compromise is that I um, I just use pencil. I find it somehow less, uh, you know. Uh, well, Rob, in a hundred years, when they're going to find your books, pencil's going to be all too faded, man. Yeah, there we go. I know. Yeah, you better write in pen. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I start. I started writing books only recently myself, just because. Yeah. I had the same attitude, Rob, that I just couldn't, quote unquote, deface the book. You know. Yeah. Um, but but again, as I've been losing that that weird attachment to the books, to the actual physical objects, I've been loosening it up. Though I still can't do the whole breaking the binding or cutting a book in half if it's too big. I think that's barbaric, whoever suggested Who, that. Or yeah, where does that, that. Where does that come from? That, Should be that, taken out and shot. Thank um, you. And, and, yeah. and we welcome, we welcome, you know, hateful <laughs> tweets to the contrary. <laughs> I, I welcome them. <laughs> All right, maybe hanged, maybe not shot. Fine, fine. <laughs> Heston, please say that you're not among that uh, <laughs> decrepit crowd. I'm not. No, I, yeah. I, would, I would never. <laughs> I mean, one of the pleasures of a big book is 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 the actual size, right? I mean, yeah. what what did I say about that uh, second volume? Musil, it's like a it's like a puppy. You hold because <laughs> it's so big, and I would carry it. I mean, you know, I, I walk to work to two point two miles each way. And I would carry it to work and back and just to read maybe a page during my lunch break, you know, but I would just carry that thing. I not, not caring that it was really heavy and big. It's just, you know, because I just enjoy really holding that kind of book. The same thing with the Moby Dick edition. Any, any big, big book that has that kind of pliability and softness that I can sort of, sort of kind of handle my, with my hands a little bit more than just a hardcover hardback, you know, that has some sort of, um, I don't know, like those, uh, you know what I really, really um, mourn is the, is the demise of the trade paperbacks. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I never, I never liked those. I know you I used to have a ton. I never liked them either, but yeah. they're so useful. I mean, all uh, all through my teens I, and 20s, I would read these, these uh, you know, science fiction books and whatnot. 
in, and, in this format. And I just loved having them around, you know? And I, and I think, um, technically speaking, what you're referring to are the mass market paper books. Yes. Th yes. Those are the tiny ones. The, the trade right. paper yeah. books are the ones I think we're more familiar with now. Yeah, just as a point of order. <laughs> yeah, but like something like a fat pay old paperback. It's just yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. I still have it, though. It's now it's yellow and, and the corners are faded. Um, uh, Little Big by John Crowley. I don't know if you guys know John Crowley. You should, because uh, Harold Bloom called him uh, something like the best contemporary American writer or something like that. He's still alive. Um, but he wrote uh, a book, in the, I believe, in the late 70s called Little Big. Little, comma, big. Uh, it won the World Fantasy Award, and it was the first real kind of like, not maybe not the first, but one of the one of the first uh, urban fantasy novels, which I hate that genre. I absolutely hate, but this book I loved. I love this book because John Crowley is an amazing, amazing writer. But this book is huge, right? It's not little. It's definitely big, um, even though it's called Little Big. But it's it's and again the pleasure of holding the book as you're reading it, especially as you start and you know in your right hand you're holding this big pile of pages in your right hand, and then your left hand is just turning the third or the fourth page, you know? And then as you go along, that ratio changes. And then your left hand has more, is holding more of the pages and then it gets less and less in your right hand. And that satisfaction, that physical satisfaction of holding those, those big wads of paper and then seeing them slowly go to the other side, like a ledger. And that kind of tells you, you're getting closer to the end, uh, which you don't get the same thing with digital. Uh, you know, you can see the pages, obviously mm. you can see page numbers, right? Scrolling down there, but it's not the same, mm. not the same. If you get close to like, you know, if you finish three quarters of a big book, you just don't get the same satisfaction opening it again to continue as, as you would a physical book, because then you, oh my God, I'm almost done. That's great. You know? So I, I don't know. I, I really miss those big fatties that you can <laughs> and, and, and put in your backpack or even in your coat pocket if you have a big coat and, and, and go with it anywhere. Um, and and you can do it, the same thing with a phone, but it's, again, it's just not the same. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I believe those, those mass market paper books, particularly in science fiction, it was, a, uh, an e it was a question of economy for the publishers, right? They wouldn't go to hardcover. These books by – they would just simply – um, go straight to mass market paper book, and they were much cheaper to to produce, to distribute, to uh, they they took up less uh, room on retail shelves, right? So I think this was the idea, and it was very helpful with um, science fiction back in the day, right? They could yes. pump they could pump them out, um, and uh, yeah, I interesting. I when. Probably in the the 80s, when you started seeing that shift to more and more books being available in the, you know, the 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 taller, thinner trade paperback format, I, mm -hmm. I remember just per personally liking that. I think, oh yeah, th this seems more legitimate to me. Well, here's a good example, guys. Uh, I have this is this is one of my favorite um, formats, and I've actually haven't seen it besides besides this example. I'm talking about. Um, Hardcore Brace uh, Jovanovic in the 80s uh, put out uh, put out um, a series of books by uh, Stanislaw Lem, the Polish science fiction writer. And they have the most incredible covers. They're tiny little paperbacks. Um, and they just feel so good that the type is so, so easy to read. Um, and it's just so enjoyable to hold. 
and they put up all of the Stanis well at least as much as it's been translated at the point all of the Stanislaw limbs in this kind of uh, in this kind of editions and I still have them from the 80s here I'm opening uh, one human minute uh, by Stanislaw Lem, and inside the cover is my name written the way I used to write it when I was about 18, 19. <laughs> <laughs> I do not write it like that anymore, and I still have all of them. But, you know, there's also a reverse of this. Uh, there's physical books that I don't like to read, um, like uh, Gerald Murnane, the Australian writer that I've, I've been really into in the past five years or so. Uh, I accidentally ordered two of his books. I didn't notice the format when I was ordering them, which was really stupid. Uh, but uh, when they got here, they're these oversized uh, kind of large print editions. They look like almost like a, like some sort of a Sears catalog, except they're shorter. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the big, big format, paperback type of format. And I can't get myself to read. I mean, I just can't read them. Even though I love the author, I really want to read them. But the type is kind of big, so I have to hold it really away, far away from me. And it's the biggest, it's a, the book is just unwieldy. It's just too big. It's soft and it's impossible to really read comfortably so there's the reverse of that also there's mm. this there's a format that just makes it almost uh, inimical to reading you know yeah but i really love these uh these hardcore braced jovanovich uh paperbacks they're just so uh aesthetically pleasing yeah no right there's certain um I, I mean, I love uh, Evelyn Waugh, but I love him even more uh, for the fact that Back Bay Books, I don't know if you recall that publisher. I'm not sure. even sure if they exist anymore. They might be yeah. an imprint of a larger. So they put out um, all of Evelyn Waugh's books uh, at a certain point, and they're just so lovely. And and um, I think Evelyn Waugh's output is un somewhat uneven, but if I see one of those editions that I don't have, I mean, I grab it. Um, and I just, I love the way they all, they look in succession um, yeah. on the bookshelf. You know, uh, I'll throw something out. One of my favorite video clips, uh, perfect for bibliophiles, is there was C-SPAN um, probably about 10 years before Christopher Hitchens died. They went and they visited him at his Washington, D.C. apartment, and it was at this famed building uh, called the Wyoming. So he had, you know, some lovely penthouse kind of thing. And so, so um you know, the reporter came in and before they did the interview, he gave a tour of the apartment and he was, you know, showing some of the views. You know, you could see, you know, the Russian embassy and this kind of thing. But the part that's so memorable and, and you can easily find it on YouTube by just Googling Christopher Hitchens tour Washington apartment. He shows his uh, his bookshelves and they're absolutely lovely and they're also kind of chaotic. Um, and he's got like, you know, the ladder so he can kind of um, but but unlike uh, a the proper ladder that is uh, built into the bookshelf and kind of has wheels. This was literally a painter's stepladder <laughs> that that he was using. And um, the, the part that I really remember is he, he said, you know, I encourage writers um, to, if you love a writer, get everything you can of that writer, get it oh, all. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, so they, they, yeah. they showed, so the camera kind of zoomed in and he said, I have, everything George Orwell wrote and they showed a line of hardcovers, probably like, you know, 30 volumes. He said, even, even Orwell's letters to the BBC, I have those, the, his expense reports. That's what he said. And then he said, um, I have everything by, um, Orwell, Proust and Joyce. And then almost everything by PJ Wadhouse, Evelyn Waugh, Marx, 
and Trotsky. <laughs> so I thought, um, <laughs> there, this, must, Christ- this must have been the, the, the Hitchens of the 90s. Exactly. Yes. 90s. <laughs> he, he's forgiven for his, uh, his delusions about the war in Iraq, but, uh, yeah. I, I still love him. And, uh, for, for a book lover, you could just see that, you know, this, this writer, this person who, uh, was a foreign correspondent, been all over the world, but he just loved books. He loved physical, yeah. physical thing. And it, it came through and, uh, I encourage people to take well, what, a peek what, at that. What do, you, what do you guys think about that, about having every copy of a writer that you love, every book that he, that he or she wrote? I mean, that's, for me, that's, that's, that was a no-brainer. I mean, way back, I guess, it started with Nabokov, right? I collected all of Nabokov, including the Russian stuff. Has, um, you have a thought. I have a, a longish thought. <laughs> um, I find myself doing it, right? Like, I think I have every book Neil Gaiman's written. Um, well, especially with Living Authors, because then you can, you can actually look forward to another book, which right. is great, you know? Yeah, I have all of um, Kazuo Ishiguro's books. Yep. Um, Murakami. Yeah, yep. so I, I do it. Yeah, the I guess the the issue for me is that I I have this fantasy that I will like what I'm into a writer like right now I'm reading um, Anthony Pohl, so he wrote um, twelve volumes. You know they say it's kind of the English Proust, um, and the series is called um, Dance to the Music of Time. Exactly, stuff like that, right? Exactly, yep. Yep. and so um, and it's it looks like it's written Powell, but it's apparently pronounced Pohl. Um, so I have a fantasy of, of, of reading all 12 in a row, but my, my interests, maybe it's, uh, not as positive as that my lack of concentration leads me to kind of get sidetracked and, and, mm. uh, in, in the best sense, you know, so, so my issue with getting every single book by a certain writer and I, I mean, I think Kitchens was implying also, like, you get the, the main biography, you get the collected letters. Right, right. Like, you really, I I just do not have the kind of focus or the kind of lifestyle to do that. So what ends up happening is I tend to specialize. And I tend to, when I get into a writer, I really figure out, like, what are the two or three key novels that are considered his best? And also, what is the very key biography, what's considered like the standard biography. And so I tend to confine myself to two or three novels, the standard biography. And then if I'm really into it and jonesing, then I want to get like what is considered the classic book of criticism or, Mm. you know, reflection. And so that, that tends to do it, but it, I'm not super satisfied with that. Um, But I just, I know how I roll, you know, and I just feel like I can't. Yeah. Well, like with Musil, Rob, you know, you know me. The way I roll is, I get a fever. I get sick, or you know, I get I get this ultimate. You're a freaking sicko. I'm a sicko like a where, where where I you know where, where I, you know I get into an author, and I mean not just somebody that I enjoy, or or is an interesting read, but when when the prose and the mind behind the prose uh, lights me on fire. Uh, then I, 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 I ride that fever as far as it will get me. For instance, with the Musil, just the recent one, the Musil, I am still finishing volume two. I just cannot read it very fast. And I think I will go on and read a few more, at least a few more, before that fever runs out. 
Um, but with Gaddis, for instance, I had a major fever with Gaddis. I read, uh, luckily with Gaddis, I guess maybe not luckily really in the end, but you can read everything that he wrote. Um, he only has four or five novels. Uh, there's only one biography now. Uh, I think Fania by Joseph Tybee uh, and also The Letters. And, you know, just just every word uh, by and about him I cherish because to me, Gaddis is... Uh, is 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 a god, you know. So the same thing with with um, uh, Rabal, Bohemil Rabal. Um, you know, everything that's been translated, I gotta read. I just have to read it because to me, it's like coming back to an old friend that I haven't seen in a while, you know. Or it's just spending time with some with a mind that I I so respect that I want to really really get into yeah. the nooks and crannies of that mind. So I have to. I have, yeah. I'm forced to read everything because I want to. You know, this is and, kind of and, weird. And, and this is where it comes down to companionship and friendship. I mean, to do that, to I, I, I think that I would if I spent a few evenings with Robert Musil uh, at at a dinner party, or I had uh, took a few walks with him. Mm-hmm. I would. Uh, they would be extremely memorable. I would be extremely stimulated. I would. I would tell stories for years about my, you know, my encounters with him. But I don't think I would want to hang out with him that often. And so I guess that's how it is with books. Like, yeah, um, uh, you know, you're you're I mean, is there any more intimacy than like spending your hours and hours in the mind? mind. I know somebody's head and you're spending time there for for sometimes for days and weeks and months. And and I feel like with Musil, it would be like, you know, if he was came over to my house for dinner, it'd be like. It's 1130. You know, he's still drinking wine. <laughs> still I'd talking. Be like, God damn it. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, dude, it's been so memorable. But, you know, I'd blame it on my my wife. You know, she goes to bed early. Can we wrap this up? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, see, I would make another pot of coffee and then and, and force I know myself you. to stay awake. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Um, it's rare that uh, I mean, I could I could hear it in Hitchens voice that, you know, him and George Orwell um, were, you know, were one. And it makes sense. There's the the, the literary talent. And then there's also the the heavily in, involvement in leftist politics, which, you know, right. right. There's, there's affinities, affinities there that uh, tied them together for sure. Um, uh, but what's the affinity that ties us to to our favorite authors? And what's that? Yeah. affinity? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, that, but, that's a whole, that's a whole different podcast, my friend. Well, actually, do you remember remember like a maybe three or four podcasts ago we were talking about, and I I mentioned something about morals. I really respect the moral the morality of an author, and this was pre Musil. So then the Musil, of course, did talk about morality and ethics a lot. Um, but I guess what I meant, you you were a little bit down on that because you said, "Well, morals. I don't want anybody to tell me morals, and you know what's moral, what's not." But I guess what I meant by that is that is that a, a, an author's worldview uh, is either inherently moral or it's not. Uh, and so or at least this variation or the gradations of that morality, you know, in authors. To me, why Gaddis, for instance, speaks to me so so deeply is because he does have this incredible moral vision. Like with j r, for instance, yeah, people think it's a critique of capitalism. It's not. It's a critique of the abuses of capitalism, you know, and it's such a vicious critique. Uh, I know a bunch of people are reading J.R. right now, and I'm, I'm kind of jealous because I read that book three times and I would like to read it a fourth time. And I will never really stop reading it because it could, it's every time I read it, it's just 
is laugh out loud funny on every almost every page. But it's it's that that kind of moral vision behind behind which kind of creates the force of the of the prose um, that I really um, look for. And I and I think it's like it's like a bit torrent. You know, bit torrent is like you pick up a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and you assemble it in your own computer. And so and so Gaddis for me is a major part of my internal understanding of the world. Yeah. And so and Nabokov too, even though I've I've, I've cooled off on his prose, uh, he certainly is in there as well. So all these authors that I feel compelled to read every last word they wrote, they are have been internalized in my head and kind of become uh, sort of uh, a, a way for me to look out. Yeah. So I internalized it, you know? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I like that line of thought. There's a ton there. Um, as far as like the, the moral point of view of the author, I, I'm thinking about that a little bit because, um, you know, since I finished Musil, maybe it's because I, I, I've switched to British literature here. I've got a stretch going where I, I read um, some Virginia Woolf and then Alan Hollinghurst and now Anthony Pohl. And so maybe it's also like, you know, reading in translation after a while, sometimes I need to like get back to like, this has yeah. not been, this has not been translated. This is my own native language. Um, well, but, that's what I miss, Rob. That's what I miss. Yeah. I'm finishing Musil. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm beginning to, I'm beginning to get that itch for, you know, quote unquote, natural English prose. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> really, exactly. I miss it. I really miss it. As, as much as I'm enjoying Musil, the prose itself is not pulling me in. It's, it's the ideas right. and the way he expresses them. But, the pro, I miss I miss non-translated prose, prose right now. Yeah, so so I was reading this novel by Alan Hollinghurst called The Line of Beauty, which is beautifully written. But the the narrator, um, the narrator was sort of a bit persnickety and and judgmental, and um, you know I, I had to spend time with him. Uh, going through this book, and I was like, hmm. And then I switched to Anthony Pohl and the uh, A Dance to the Music of Time, the series. And so the 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 narrator here, much like in In Search of Lost Time, is the, kind of the writer himself. Although the the narrator's name is Jenkins, so he's the uh, he sort of takes you through his life. And the the remarkable thing about him is that. Um, he is incredibly patient and um, he sees the good in people, even though you are presented with these characters in such fullness, this is the artistry of Pole, that you know that many of these characters are despicable. They're, they're, they're Philistines, they're shallow, they're snobs, but Jenkins has such a, a goodness to him personally. And it's, it is, it's very interesting to actually give your narrator, um, your protagonist, such a, um, uh, a forgiving nature. And it, it, it does make me think about mm. the moral point of view of a writer and, and what effect that has. Yeah, because you can't really, as a writer, uh, as, at least if you're going to be a good or great writer, you can't really just come out and say things at least from an ethical moral kind of perspective because that's that's just not going to fly you have to really work it into the structure and the, the your characters um very in a very subtle way because nobody wants to be hit over the head with any kind of morality yeah. you know right. at the same time you have um you know things like animal farm you know uh, speaking of orwell um 
uh, books that are meant to be moral fables, you know. Um, so that's a little bit different, I think. Um, but again, you can't just, it's not a polemic, you know, we're talking about fiction here, we're talking about literature, we're not talking about any kind of, uh, you know, philosophy text or a polemic or a rant from somebody, you know, about, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Uh, we're looking for this to be uh, in a kind of a total picture of, uh, of a worldview. It's not, not just part of it, but kind of built into it, um, that to the point where you can't really see it, but it's there and you can feel the force. That's why I feel from Gaddis reading his books. You don't, you know, you know, as I was growing up, I, and I'm sure you have the same thing, Robin Heston, you, you, you tend to look up the certain cultural figures to see where they're thinking about what's going on. And you kind of like, well, I respect them. And therefore, I, I'll, I'll listen to what they have to say. Like George Carlin was that that person for me, for instance. Uh, Robert Anthony Wilson is another person. People who, who kind of I could see look up to and say what you know what if they were alive right now they, i would be like what what are your thoughts about this you know, please please let, let me see what you're thinking because i really respect your mind and and see how see how you're responding to this because you know i've i trust you so to speak you know so we have this kind of uh this way of of leaning on on, on writers for our own uh, world understanding right um, and that's what I really appreciate about great writers is that is they give me a framework from which to look out into the world and see it in um, in a more in a clearer light or, or a different light. I'm not sure exactly sure how to express myself here, but but I, I I miss those cultural figures who are not here right now to sort of guide me or guide us to uh, yeah, through, I, through certain things. You know, I, I wish like Hitchens, um, Hitchens is another one, right? Hitchens I, is a great example. I was just going to say that. And I, yeah. I feel like, I mean, yes, he took a, a turn, a uh, conservative turn. But you still respected turn. him. You still respected his intellect. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you know, um, William F. Buckley Jr., although he had some ugly sides, um, if, if that was the conservative opposition in this country as it had been for years oh. you, can, you can deal with that obviously. i know is that kind of funny that we, we we missed those days remember back then we we're like oh goddamn william f buckley <laughs> i know but now um, we're like oh that, that was the most the, the best kind of conservatism we could have in this country compared to right. at least now i mean you know the, there was a, a recent documentary that showed his um you know his homophobia vis-a-vis -vis, um what was the uh Pittsburgh? the novelist no um who was the mid-century novelist who did all those historical novels? Oh, Capote. Capote? Not Capote. Historical novels, mid-century, gay. But there, there was a, yeah, a oh. Netflix documentary, and they, they had a series of debates. Um, uh, it'll come to me. But but on the front of, of naked white nationalism, of racism, of of the fringe of the right, which is always, they're, they're like weeds, right? They're always looking mm -hmm. to take over. William F. Buckley as editor of the National Review and host of Firing Line, he had these two platforms to basically suppress the, the fringe lunatic right within the conservative movement. And he did that consciously and he did that aggressively. Um, and so there is no, right, that, that. No, the rudder is gone, and now it's the all extremists. Yeah, the, the extremes, uh, the and, extremes have taken over. And the writer I was thinking of was Gore Vidal. So, oh, Gore Vidal, of course, yeah. So um, uh, Netflix had a great documentary about their rivalry through the years, and at yeah, one so point, yeah. one point, you know, uh, William F. Buckley in the '60s made it clear that you know, listen, you uh, homosexual, you just be quiet. 
So there, there was a bit of that, which, uh, inex- you know, unexcusable, but obviously somewhat common in those days. Um, mm. But yeah, so I'm not sure how we ended up talking about William F. Buckley Jr. <laughs> well, well, to get it back to, yeah. to books as physical objects, I was going to say I have um, certain books you kind of really need to have as physical objects, right? Like an um, uh, obvious example is poetry. I mean, you can read poetry, obviously, on the screen, but... But the arrangement of the text, the line breaks, the way it looks on the page, the empty spaces here and there are so important for at least some poets, uh, particularly poets that I really enjoy, like Charles Olson. Um, but uh, even not poetry, like like John Cage's Diary, which was published a while ago uh, in the hardback edition. It's a beautiful book. Um, there's different colors in it. The text comes in blue and red, I believe. And the way that the, it, it's obviously John Cage wrote it exactly that way. Maybe not in the colors, but exactly that, you know, the line spacings are the same. Uh, reproduced exactly like he wrote them. Uh, so there's no way for this book to be enjoyed, uh, like on a screen, for instance, or even just like you, you, you can't just retype the book, you know, like certain uh, was it Hunter S. Thompson and a bunch of other people uh, would advise young authors to uh, go find your favorite author, you know, and then type yeah, I, their book or their story. Like he, he would retype Hemingway, right? Yeah, I haven't heard that advice for a while, but I think yeah. there's probably something to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that physicality uh, for a reader becomes physicality for a writer. You actually have to you know, at least in this case, it was a typewriter. <laughs> Nowadays, it's less physical, though it's still, yeah. you're still pushing buttons, right? It's still doing a physical activity. We're not quite at the point where we could just think about a sentence and then it will be written on a screen. Though I'm sure that's coming in the next yeah. 20 years or something like that. You yeah. know, that's, we're going to get more and more, uh, we're going to get farther and farther away from the physical, Robin Heston. We guys, guys, we, we're moving away from this. So this is, this, this, this is going to be a really, a real fetish, a real historical fetish very soon. And I, um, I don't know about you guys, but but let me just finish the thought that yep. that seeing all this book porn on um, on Twitter, people tweeting their shelves, their books, I I it's fine, and I I I'll I'll give you that you enjoy it, but I don't. <laughs> I, I I get to be like well, you Puritan Roman. I well, because goddamn it, I want to read those books too. You're making me feel inadequate by looking. I'm looking at this uh, this pile of books. Like, oh, I just read these three, you know, these thirty books. Well, I'm still just reading this one book for the past four months, you know, and I, I probably have another month or two to go with Musil. And I'm yes, I'm enjoying it, but but you know, meanwhile, you're making me feel kind of like bad for <laughs> not reading these books. I want to read them, but. Also, yeah, finally, down. finally, in, in episode 24, Roman's wounded self-esteem kind of trusts itself. But I've slowed down in my reading. I, maybe it's because I'm almost 50, but I just don't read at the rate I used to read in my 20s and 30s. I just don't. I don't go through, you know, 10 books a month. I just don't. I go through maybe one if I'm and lucky. I think it's probably also worth acknowledging um, that, you know, I think we, we kind of made a pact not to obsess endlessly about, you know, the, the COVID situation right now. But I, I have been seeing a lot of people are really struggling to concentrate and to, to read. I think a lot of people hoped, and I've seen tweets to this effect, that, you know, one of the, um, the upsides of, of being home more was that people would read more. And it's interesting. I, people seem to be struggling uh, 
with concentrating, um, which is understandable. Well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, it's 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 partly. I think it's partly, obviously, the horrible worldwide situation that we're experiencing. But it's also all that binging on TV. Uh, I've definitely yeah. noticed that when I go through a binge on Netflix or something like that, uh, my attention span is gone. So, so this 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 is the problem. There's two types of attention, right? We have we have the passive attention and active attention. When we're watching TV, it's passive attention. It's all provided for us, to us and for us and into our brains goes right in there, and you know you have to process a little bit, obviously. But it's it's a passive type of attention. When we read, it's an active attention. You really have to put yourself into it, and it's it's kind of like a muscle. I mean, books have been written about this, but if we don't use it, if got to let it go a little bit here and there, and then we we really rely on passive attention to get us through the day, then it's so much harder to get to active attention. It really totally. is. Um, but I, so, I don't know what to do about it because I, I'm just like everybody else. I'm binging on TV in these times, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, for, for me personally, um, streaming, tele, television doesn't feel like the huge culprit. It feels like my iPad and my iPhone. So I, I've gotten to the point when I'm going to sit down and I'm going to block out an hour to read, I do not bring the phone into the room with me. So that, okay. that's been one of the biggest things. And I've, I think I mentioned this before, but I've brought out the old-fashioned uh, dictionary. So that, that's often the, the, the sort of like the excuse to grab my iPhone. Oh, I don't you know, look up this word. And before I know it, uh, let me check the New York Times quickly. I'm, I'm off. You know, I'm gone again. So I've got my, my physical dictionary with me. Um, my iPhone is in the kitchen and I'm just not going to, you know, and, and if I have a desperate need to know, um, you know, what, what transpired during the Peloponnesian war or something, <laughs> you know, I, I can write that down and look it up later, you know? Right. Right. Well, you know, we all have different ways of coping with this, um, but I, 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 I would, I would love to read like I used to in my twenties and, you know, and teens but i just i don't know if that will ever happen again yeah. i just don't know i, I and also i've slid back into classics i just i can't i uh heston i've been trying to read the station 11 i got about maybe halfway through and the prose is just not it's not calling me back i kind of want to know what happens but i would i would i don't know i'd rather read musil even though it's harder and i don't really understand what the hell i'm reading for the most, <laughs> most of the time well yeah you know it's 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 just especially the since I'm in the second volume now, the second half of the volume, it's all like variations of the of the book and alternate chapters and that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit confusing, but it's also just the the, the density and the amount of thought that I have to invest in in Musil is is so much more than than Station Eleven. Though I enjoy I'm enjoying reading the Station Eleven, but it's not calling me back, Heston. I can't. You know, like here's here's Station Eleven on my right side, and here's let's say uh, something by uh, Melville. Like um, I've been meaning to read more of his short stories, so I I just choose the Melville because yeah. I know it's gonna it's the the treasures there are so much more refined or something. I don't, I, I I don't so I can't I can't seem to be able to read contemporary books. You guys, I don't know what's happening to me. Yeah, I'm sl I, sliding back into classics. I think I found Station Eleven so engaging because. There are so many ties to the present, right? We were talking about COVID. Yeah. And it feels, it, it's just strange reading it because you're like, wow, we, this is where we could have well, been. Well, that's, what, that's right? what pulled me in originally. But I just, right. but, the, but the prose, you know, I used to be able to read these kinds of books like there were peanuts. And, <laughs> you know, there's, 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 a, um, there's a libertarian science fiction uh, 
organization called the Prometheus Awards. I don't know if you're aware of that, Heston. Uh, the Prometheus Awards, they they kind of, uh, they, they give this award every year to a science fiction or fantasy book that best expresses uh, uh, libertarian values, but libertarian not in the, not in the crazy modern sense or the crazy, you know. And, and uh, Rand kind of. Yeah. yeah, the libertarian, the old fashioned libertarian of human freedom, uh, you know, no, no, don't try on me from the government type of deal, you know. Uh, so they give this award every year, and I've really enjoyed their award winners. Uh, you know, Illuminatus Trilogy is one of them. Uh, so I was just reading a, about a, it was a 2014 award winner. I was reading a review of it and kind of an, uh, an overview of the Prometheus Awards, and I was like, that sounds amazing. This is something I would have right away gone and picked up and read within a week, you know, this, this book that won the Prometheus Award in 2014. Now, even though it sounds interesting and like, well, that's something I might want to read, that desire to run out and get it and just read it and just have it in my head is not there anymore. And I think it, I think it's a function of age. But I, uh, I would also I point, I would also point out, Roman, just from knowing you that, um, you know, until recently, you you were uh, you worked from home. Uh, you were an editor. You were a yeah. freelance editor, and so that probably gave you a lot of flexibility to. That's true. To focus. You know what I mean? I think that that has a tremendous effect. I mean, you're now you know a nine to five dude. I have a blue collar job that's very yeah. physical, so I am exhausted by the end of the day. Um, who would, have, who would have thought that I would have this blue collar job for years now? And I've had it like for this is my fourth year working as a truck driver, basically. <laughs> but, you know, I'm lucky because during this pandemic, I'm actually an essential worker. So I'm, yeah. I continue to get my paycheck and work. Uh, but you're right. It, it, something has changed when I started this job because I am just filthy and exhausted by the end of the day. And on the weekends, I need like a one day just to recuperate from all the physical activity. And then I have Sunday and then that's it, you know, and then, yeah. which I still try to, I, I still carry my book, you know, to work with me. And I read for like 20 minutes, half an hour during lunch, but it's just not enough for a day's reading. I you mean, that's audio books at all while you're driving. You no, know, I, I no, no, because I need to concentrate on the road and I, I have stops like, every, you know, sometimes every five minutes I have to stop. Sometimes gotcha. I have like 20 minutes, half an hour between stops. And, um, I can't concentrate. I take my driving very seriously, which is knock on wood, uh, as basically I've been accident-free ever since I started driving 35 years ago. So I take driving. The, the only way I can survive this job is to actually pay attention to the driving. I really, really enjoy driving. It's one of my most favorite activities, I guess. Um, and I'm good at it, you know. So I pay attention when I drive. I am, I'm all in. <clears throat> And uh, I and, did and, I did listen to Moby Dick uh, on my walks to work and back. Uh, I was listening to a very very good audiobook of Moby Dick, uh, read by Richard Hutkins, the actor. Uh, I really enjoyed that, but I can't do it while I'm driving. I really can't. I tried, and it just doesn't work for me. So I'm screwed. I'm a little bit screwed with my <laughs> reading. It's my time. My reading time has been really squeezed. Um, you know, so. And, and, I, and I can point out, I remember as a kid uh, reading The Beats and Jack Kerouac kept referring to Neil Cassidy as being this incredible driver. He's an mm -hmm. amazing driver. And I didn't understand it. Like my mom drove, my dad drove. I mean, it's just driving. And I could say, Roman, after <laughs> yeah. having driven with you all over the country in many kinds of conditions, uh, and I can tell the audience, Roman is a superb <laughs> driver and it is an oh. uncommon skill. 
Well, thanks, man. Thanks. I actually get complimented. I was driving in Sweden uh, this past summer when we were over there, uh, which was a lot of fun to drive in a foreign country. Um, but we were switching off, and uh, as when I started driving, uh, I, I was thanked for being such a smooth and and careful driver. Like, I try to make people not feel that they're in a moving vehicle, because <laughs> I think I started my driving career as a bus driver way back in college. That was my college job as a bus driver. So you learn how to stop without jerking people, you know, back and forth. Um, but, so but yeah, also, but thanks, it's man. It's also about uh, aggression in urban environments, Boston and New York. And oh yeah. And, and that was one of, you know, one, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes when I was a tour guide in Boston, driving one of those fake trolley looking things is just to scare the, the, the tourists on my trolley. I would say, folks, okay, we're here in the right lane. We have three lanes to cross to get to the left lane because I make I have to make a left turn. And uh, as you can see, the streets are full, the, the lanes are full, but this is how we do it in Boston. And I would just crank the wheel to the left and just go because, you know, <laughs> being a big vehicle on the road, you can push your weight around. People kind of stop and get scared of you. Like, So I just went, you know, I would go straight from the, it's right between the Boston Common and the uh, Public Garden, you know, that street. I think, is it, uh, sure. I forget what that yeah. street is. Uh, right, right, right by the make way for ducklings, you know, the little ducklings. Uh, I would have to make a left there on Tremont Street, wherever that street is. Um, and I would just crank the wheel and the gasps from behind me, from the tourists, be like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really entertaining. And I also had the, just, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, it's ridiculous, but there was one, um, <laughs> when I was driving uh, in uh, UMass, I was driving a bus and there was a, a stop at Hampshire College and there was this big, big bump on the road that I would speed up. I would speed up to hit this bump because I had a, you know, my seat was a spring seat the driver's seat, but, and I would just, just go up and down the spring street going, woo. And I could just see the passengers in the back, just bouncing on their, on their really hard seats, giving me dirty looks. So maybe I'm not such a great driver. I don't know. <laughs> but my reading, my reading is done is, is really been yeah. squeezed by my job. So I, I'm yeah. not exactly sure how to fix that. I don't have, yeah. I don't and have I, those periods where I can just read and read and read. And, and, you know, I would direct folks who um, we basically spent an hour talking about the trouble of reading these days in a in a podcast called Anxiety in the Reading Life. So I'd encourage people to to go check that yeah. out. Um, Not a new so, topic for us. Yeah. So um, I, I'm going to throw out just two quick things on this topic, and then I think we're, we're starting to get towards the end of our journey. But um, sometimes you still see in books – I don't see them much anymore, but do, do you remember those little stickers that people would put in ex libris, you know, from the library of? Oh, yeah. And and so I, I can remember uh, when I first started reading seriously in high school and and started to, like, buy books and put them in my little bedroom, I, I started thinking, like, that's that's what I'm going to do. That that's what adults do. That's what serious readers do. They <laughs> they they have a library and they 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 have these stickers. I kind of imagine that you know, uh, you know uh, Tennyson or or William Blake or someone that you know this is what they must have done when they were young men. <laughs> I, I have to say that that never quite uh, uh, had legs, but. Uh, do, but, does anyone you know, does anyone do that anymore? And you know, all due respect to anyone who listens who does, but I, I haven't I seen that for years. Don't know, but I, I remember I had a, a collection of these ex libris uh, stickers from a science fiction and fantasy illustrator Boris Vallejo, uh, 
you guys are probably if, if you see some uh, paperbacks from the 80s and 90s, uh, like science fiction fantasy, chances are Boris Vallejo uh, did the illustration. But this this particular Ex Libris um, stickers, they had um, very racy fantasy kind of a Conan Conan and his girlfriend type of deal. <laughs> and his girlfriend was very scantily clad. Uh, uh, you know, and Boris Vallejo has got this style where it's kind of sexy and, and you know, it's it was very – so I, as, as an 18-year-old, of course, I had a bunch of these and I would put them in every goddamn book I, I was reading. <laughs> and I still come across them once in a while. Uh, and you know that, that as I was telling you, that I picked up the, those books from that guy who died. Uh, he had a bunch of these uh, book plates in, in, in his books. Uh, and they were like, you know, 1921, 1923, and they were signed by him. It's his books. Uh, but it's kind of nice to see that uh, somebody loved the books enough to put their own sort of, um, you know, stamp on them. I think it's <laughs> yeah. kind of personalizes them a little bit, you know? Yeah. And and I suppose the, the final thought I'll just throw out there is um, – I mean, I, I personally have this this real fear that, um, you know, many of the bookstores we love, for those of us who live in cities, I know in the suburbs, it's hard to find independent bookstores. You know, I'm really starting to get worried that um, some of these bookstores are just not coming back, you know, as we yeah. get deeper and deeper, um, you know, into this or they're going to close branches. I know, you know, Heston thinking locally here in Portland you know, Powell's has, um, I believe at this point, it's four branches, including an airport branch. But they have a, besides the famous store in the Pearl District in downtown Portland, they have a, a really, really large and wonderful uh, subsidiary store in Beaverton, out where I live. And I know, Roman, I took you there to the suburban location. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you were astounded by the uh, science fiction collection there. If you oh, my God. It. Yeah, I mean, because they had the new and used books at the same location. And it, the selection was was really deep. I mean, really extensive and, selection. And and so that's their their sub tier store, you know, which is mm, shocking. Mm. So I, I really I really fear that you know I'm sure their historic central location will make it, but they have they have one on Hawthorne, mm -hmm. uh, closer to Heston, and right. I, I worry that uh, they. But just even if the, if even it. if the like the main location makes it, how are they going to do social distancing? In I mean, I'm just picturing the know. Strand in in Manhattan. You go to the yeah. Strand. There's no freaking way you can do any kind of social distancing there, you know? Yeah. No, no way. I mean, Powell's has more room than the Strand, but the point is the same. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I it's think like, you'd have to like, limit the yeah. amount of people that are in the store. You know, you'd have to be like, oh, only 50 people out in the store at a time or something. Yeah. Which yeah. which which will hurt the business because oh, sure. yeah. that's they need as many people in there as possible to really make a living. As it is, they're, they're on the margins of survival. Yeah. So I think... Look, this is going to be a very different landscape uh, when we emerge from this two, three years from now. Uh, it's going to be a very different landscape. Some won't survive, for sure, yeah. which is very unfortunate. But but maybe that's the soil will be tilled, so to speak, for somebody else to come up. You yeah. Know? And, and I mean, just as an observation, and I mean, I love Powell's, and I've been ordering books from them during the shutdown, a couple of bundles. And um, I mean, theor in theory, Powell's was an online bookseller, right, prior to this, right? They They... They kind of made their name a little bit in that field. But, I mean, the books are taking – I mean, I, I may get some of my books, you know, before I'm 60. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but, but they, are, they are just not – you know, and, and it's the temptation to jump on Amazon, right, who you know will get, get you these books even in a pandemic in like four days. 
Right. right. Um, so, so there's yeah, there there's going well, to have listen, to listen. Powell's is great. There's another resource I want to give people. Uh, uh, something that's not owned by Amazon. Uh, it's bookshop.org. Bookshop.org, I think, is something like a bunch of used bookstores uh, or indie bookstores got together uh, to kind of form bookshop.org. And any book that gets sold through them uh, gets distributed among all the members. So it's another good resource, you know, that if you want to avoid Amazon, bookshop.org. I don't know about the, whether they really are on top of, uh, you know, sending books out on time. I just don't know that, but uh, you know, we should probably try to help them out by ordering from them as well. Yep. You know. Well, cool. Um, I think I've said everything I can say on books as objects. And any parting thoughts here, gentlemen? No, except to tell you that I have this book by Michael Sisko. He's um, he's uh, an academic and writer. I believe is based in New York. He's Specializes in degenred fiction. He calls it degenred, meaning he's oh. kind of you know a weird fiction type of guy. Um, and he's I got one of his books. It's called Animal Money. And the only the only reason I bought this book, besides the description of it being weird, which always attracts me, um, is the cover. And I, I don't think we really talked about covers that much. Yeah, right. They're yeah. so important. We don't judge a book by the cover. But yet we do, don't we? We do a little bit. We do admit it. So this cover of this book, if you guys want to Google it, it's called Animal Money by Michael Cisco, C-I-S-C-O, I believe, uh, is the best freaking cover ever. And that's really why I got this book. And I probably will read it at some point because the cover keeps looking at me, keeps winking at me. Uh, but yeah, Google Discovery, you guys, uh, Google, Google Images or something, because it's really cool. Yes, my, my bookshelves are filled with books that I bought simply because I was attracted to them. And yes. I, as soon as I put them on my shelf, I'm like, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm looking at a book now. I There's a, a fine British novelist uh, by the name of Muriel Spark. Oh, and yeah. she, she wrote in the 50s and was kind of known as a as a kind of Catholic writer. And she wrote some just fantastic books, um, which I can't recommend highly enough. But there was this lovely, talk about a fatty Roman, a fat, hardcover biography of Muriel Spark. And there's this gorgeous picture of her on the cover when she was probably about, you know, 45 years old, just a beautifully attractive woman, a sophisticated woman. And I loved her writing. And I just... I paid like 35 bucks for it. I just grabbed it, brought it home. And I, I, I mean, as much as I like Muriel Spark, I'm probably not going to read <laughs> an 800 page biography of Muriel Spark, but. But you, you know, know, you never know, Rob. You bra never know. Bravo to the graphic designers uh, on that cover. But you never know, Rob. You know, the mood might strike you. You might be like on a yes. Tuesday afternoon, you'll be walking around your house, you know, kind of restless and like, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? I don't know what to do. And then you come across this book and suddenly like, you know what? I'm going to start reading this book. It's possible. I, I feel like it. It's possible. So there you go. Particularly if this uh, lockdown goes on any further. Well, that, that's why we keep books. That's why we put them on the shelf. That's why we get attracted to them. We buy them because at some point we'll get attracted to them again. Yeah. You know, you know that, that's that's a great point and uh, another reason to keep them around. Um, time, timing is everything. I think we talked about that on, yeah. on one of our podcasts. Um, well, well, it's been fun, gentlemen. Um, 
stay safe. Great talking to you. I miss talking to you guys. And um, just to remind people, you can follow us on Twitter um, at Feel Bookish, if that's if that's it, or maybe I've forgotten. But you can find us on Twitter. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the ing was already taken. So Feel Bookish, and um, you can find us on um, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And just a reminder, um, if you feel so inclined, you know, give us a few stars on um, Apple Podcasts that allows uh, more people to become aware of the podcast. So we'd appreciate that. So that's it. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.